Today we begin the book of Matthew. In the weeks ahead, we'll get a very clear message of what Matthew was inspired to write and why. But before we begin, we begin, pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word that we can study this together in unusual circumstances. But Lord, we're just praying that one of these days we'll be able to do a, an in-person teaching session. But for now, this is what you've given us, and we thank you for the technology. Father, we pray as we study together that we'll get a clearer view of what you would have us be, what you would have us do as we study your life, as we study what Matthew had to, to write. Thank you, Father, for the teachers who are part of the team. We pray that you'll encourage and, and just help them to be blessed as they prepare to teach. Again, we just thank you for your son, for all that you've done through him. Uh, you've made a way for us to come to you, Lord. In our sin and our undoneness, you reached down and, and made a way for us to become your children. We're so thankful. Continue with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And this surely is a book of instruction because it clearly describes what Jesus said and did. And that can shape our role as we live as his disciples, as followers of him, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Today we're going to cover chapters 1 and 2, and from then on we'll study a chapter a week. Just a reminder again to be praying for each of our teaching team as they prepare each week. And now we'll start with Matthew. He was originally called Levi. He was the son of Alphaeus. He began his career as a publican, a tax collector. And we know that that was not a popular career choice. Tax collectors were looked down on because they collected taxes for the government and were often known to extort more than necessary for their own personal gain, which allowed them to become very wealthy. They had bought these tax franchises from the Roman government. They were considered traitors, as they were seen as colluding with the occupying Roman government in its oppression. One day as Matthew sat in his tax booth, Jesus passed by. In Mark's Gospel, in chapter 2, verse 14, it says, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. What he had heard or witnessed about Jesus certainly brought about his conversion. It was immediate. His response showed that he recognized his need for forgiveness and his desire to follow Jesus as his savior. From then on, he's known as Matthew. Did Jesus change his name to become known as Matthew? We know Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, but from now on, he's Matthew, which means gift of Yahweh. Being a tax collector, Matthew would have had a very orderly, concise way of writing. We will see this in the way the book is laid out with its themes of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is the promised one. Of its themes of kingship and the kingdom of heaven. He'll also describe the opposition and conflict as he gets into the book. There are narratives, parables, discourses. Matthew had a purpose for what he was writing. He had a very organized mind with all the accounting and tax collecting. And it crossed my mind, why would he not be carrying the purse for the disciples instead of Judas? 
But Jesus knew before calling any of these, these men what his purpose and plan was for each of their lives. The book was probably written around A.D. 55-65, and Matthew's audience would have been Jewish converts as well as unbelievers. His purpose was to demonstrate that Jesus is the King and the promised Messiah of Israel. As we will see, Matthew's purpose was also to encourage believers in their witness in a hostile world and to inspire a deeper faith in Jesus the Messiah, along with a maturing understanding of his person, his work, and his unique place in the history of redemption. In the past few weeks, every time I listened to 96.3, it seemed that there was this ad for Ancestry.com. It said, since people have so much time on their hands, why not trace back and discover your lineage? Well, I remember my husband saying to me that their family could trace back their line, which included a horse thief that was hung from the last horse he stole. So maybe I don't want to trace mine? I will say this that it is good to look back and see the spiritual heritage that some may have, to be thankful for great-grandparents whose Christian heritage had an impact on their life, or a grandparent who prayed for one is wonderful. I can't say that, but one lady who just inspired me to think of my standing with the Lord was Rebecca's grandmother, Phyllis. She used to say to me, I am the daughter of a king, and you're the daughter of a king. And I knew what she meant. She treasured her Savior, and it was something that stayed with me. Her focus was what, on what had been given to her by the new birth, not on her family heritage, although she certainly did love that. Matthew had been born again, and as he wrote, he wanted everyone who would read these words to know that Jesus was the long-awaited promised Messiah. I asked you to prepare for the lesson by reading chapters 1 and 2. And so I'm going to go through the genealogy, pointing out some of the highlights that show specific markers in time. Let's begin with the first verse. The record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first proper name we see is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Hebrew word Yeshua, means the Lord is salvation. Christ means Messiah or anointed one. In his opening genealogy, Matthew traces back to Abraham. In verse 1, he begins with two other names besides Jesus Christ. He mentions the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why son of David? It's an important title throughout the book. Actually, in six different chapters, we see that title, son of David, used. God swore covenant love to David. Psalm 89 says, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. God promised that one of David's immediate descendants would establish the kingdom and that it would endure forever. The purpose of tracing our Lord's ancestry to David is to show that the promises made to David that he should be an ancestor of the Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The opening genealogy is written to document Christ's credentials as Israel's king, and the rest of the book will carry through the theme. Why son of Abraham? Well, this covenant with the Jewish people had first been made with Abraham. He received a great promise from God. Genesis 12 is where God calls Abram to go to a land that he would show him. God told Abram, I will bless you and make your name great, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Further in Genesis 22 and 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
So the point of these two persons and the promises is this. Jesus will be that Davidic king who will reign over the eternal kingdom that will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Matthew is going to show how the blessing of all nations will be by the great commission that we're going to see later on in the study. He constantly refers to Christ as the son of David. His purpose is clear, to show that Jesus is the Jewish nation's long-awaited promised Messiah. Let's continue to read the genealogy. Look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Hmm. We see the name Tamar, and she's the first of four women mentioned in the genealogy. And then in verse 5, we see the next female mentioned, Rahab, and then Ruth. The genealogy continues on in verse 6, where King David is mentioned. But that verse is a marker. Do you see it? Right there in verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And so we go on. We see in verse 6 the name Solomon's mother. She's the wife of Uriah, who we know as Bathsheba. Then the next section of the genealogy brings us to verse 11, which marks the deportation to Babylon. And then 14 more generations, all the way down to verse 16, we read, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. One explanation of why the genealogy included the four women we mentioned, instead of an all-male listing, was that these four women were Gentiles. And to quote Douglas O'Donnell, it's all part of a plan, a plan that Paul explains most plainly in Galatians 3, 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you're Christ's, you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now later in chapter 15, we will see that even Canaanites can come into the kingdom. End quote. So in this genealogy, we see men and women, imperfect, sinners. They're going to be used to fulfill God's plan. Now, as you read through the genealogy, did you see the phrase repeated over and over again? The father of, the father of, the father of, all the way through the genealogy. The father of. And until we come to verse 16, where the last time the phrase is used, it's used in describing Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew is specific in his wording because he wants it made perfectly clear that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. He will make it clearer as we read on. It wasn't so long ago we just finished singing Christmas carols proclaiming the birth of Jesus. The hymn Hark the Herald Angels Sing says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And the verse goes on, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. 
He is the king, and he is the genesis of this new kingdom. Matthew is going to begin his book with the origin and birth of Jesus. And clearly, as we read on, we'll see how the name of Jesus Christ and Emmanuel explains who he is and why he came. So let's read now the birth, the record of the birth in verses 18 to 25. Follow along with me. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Mary's pregnant. She had been betrothed to Joseph, which in that culture meant that the term was not just an engagement. It was the closest step to the marriage. The betrothal lasted a year and came after the engagement, and it was absolutely binding. Up to that point, if either party wanted out, they could. But after the betrothal was in effect, it was binding. In fact, although they were not yet together, they weren't cohabiting, but they were known as husband and wife, which is why when you look at verse 19, do you see it there? Verse 19, Joseph is referred to as her husband. So Matthew will now describe what happens next. Joseph, and here we get a brief description of this man, he is a just man. But even though he is described as just, who knows what must have been going through his mind? His Mary, who he loved and trusted, how could it be? He was so concerned for her, knowing what the old law said. Deuteronomy was very clear. In chapter 22, 13 to 30, the law was clear. When you get time, go through and read that. But in, in verse 23, especially that verse, it says, if there's a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. This was to purge the evil from Israel. Now it tells us how God considered sexual purity. How must God be looking upon this world today with so much emphasis on sexual freedom and gratification? What was Joseph to do? The next line tells us he resolved to divorce her quietly. To marry her would be like admitting, yeah, I'm guilty of impregnating her, when he wasn't. So he was going to divorce her quietly, which by law meant before two witnesses. And then verse 20 starts with an important word. Do you see it? Verse 20. But. But. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream as he considered these things. But, as he considered these things. I love the word in scripture because so often it, get, it means just get ready to see what God is doing. But as Joseph considered those things, 
the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And look what he said. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew had already said that. If you look back in verse 18, you see that there? There's his emphasis. In those days, it was appropriate for the parents to name the child. But do you see here, the angel tells Joseph, Mary will bear a son, and you, Joseph, will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child is no mere baby. He is the Holy One, God in the flesh, God with us. And then Matthew does something in verse 22. We're going to see that all through the book. He will quote from the Old Testament. And he says, all this took place to fulfill. There's that word. To fulfill what? What the Lord had spoken. He'll do this by quoting the Old Testament over and over to show that Jesus fulfilled the words of the Jewish prophets. As you read through the gospel, note the different times that the Old Testament is quoted and the phrases that will precede it. The phrase, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord. Or another phrase will say, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The Jewish view of prophetical inspiration was that the Lord is the source or author of the prophecy and the prophet was the mouthpiece. Peace. So by the prophet would really mean through the prophet. Matthew will repeat the word fulfilled to show that what was promised in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, Matthew records Jesus himself in chapter 5 saying, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill it. There's the word. So Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 and 14. He says, Behold, the virgin will conceive. Now back up a bit. Notice it doesn't say a virgin. Some loose translations say a young woman. No, the virgin implies something very important. God had chosen this particular woman to be the mother of Jesus. That did not make her special or sinless, but it did make her the one God had chosen. He knew who he wanted to raise this child. And her virginity is what Isaiah and Matthew are emphasizing. Because if Jesus was conceived in the way we all were, he would not be the perfect sinless sacrifice. He would be simply another man. Upon his death, he would have remained in the grave. His sacrifice would have not made atonement for sin. Jesus knew what his mission was long before circumstances took their terrible turn toward the cross. He told a Sanhedrin member early on that he had come to be lifted up as Moses had lifted up the bronze servant, serpent in the wilderness in John 3. He was referring to the cross. He explicitly warned his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That was referring to his resurrection. He knew that his sacrifice would be satisfactory. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. To be in your sins is the opposite of being in Christ. When we are in Christ, we get what Christ can do for us, forgiveness and eternal life. So the virgin birth is vitally important for our faith. 
It proves that God was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son and raised him from the dead. And so Joseph wakes up and takes action, made her his wife. But Matthew wants us to make sure we understand that Joseph knew her not, meaning the marriage was not consummated until she had given birth. And Joseph called his name Jesus. By marrying Mary, Joseph becomes the surrogate father of Jesus. And again, I'd like to quote Douglas O'Donnell. Joseph made Jesus his legally, two ways. First, he took Mary as his wife, and second, and Joseph called his name Jesus. By accepting Mary as his wife and by naming her child, he officially bestowed upon Jesus the status of a descendant of David." End quote. As we begin chapter 2, Matthew is continuing the narrative by stating Jesus had been born. In Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, Herod, who was quite a piece of work. To quote a commentary, he slaughtered the last remains of the dynasty that ruled before him. He put to death half of the Sanhedrin, killed 300 court officers, executed his wife and mother-in-law and three of his sons to name just a few of his deeds. So as we see the story play out of the wise men, Matthew is going to show how God showed his providential and supernatural care of his virgin-born son. God knew the hostilities and sufferings he would face. Now, who these magi were are not identified, or how many they were. there were. But they were seeking. Despite their limited knowledge, they were seeking so they could worship him. Let's read the first eight verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who the shepherd who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and, and when you have found him, bring me word that I, I too may come and worship him. The wise men came to Jerusalem. After all, where else would a king be born? They'd seen the star and headed to Jerusalem and started to make inquiries. The Magi's questions show us that Jesus had the title King of the Jews from his birth. And interestingly, up over his cross was the inscription King of the Jews. When Herod heard of this in his paranoia, he sends for them. Verse 3 says, All Jerusalem with him. Why do you suppose all Jerusalem were troubled? Probably the whole of Jerusalem were worried over what cruelty this ruler would now inflict in trying to find the little king. And so in verse 4, Herod, and he probably asked them separately, because you see the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, and the priests, who were the Sadducees, did not get along. The only thing they were united in was their hatred and opposition to Christ. However, Herod asked them where the Christ was to be born. And here is another prophecy. They tell Herod it was written in Micah's book. 
But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now the interesting thing is that these scholars of the scripture knew where the Messiah was to be born, but couldn't even be bothered to go with the Magi and check it out. So Herod summons the wise men secretly, he thinks. But I think of the word of God that says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that sly old fox asks, actually the way it's described here, the word used is ascertained. A definition for that word is to work out the exact time the star appeared and sends them off to Bethlehem and says, bring me word so I too may come and worship him. That knowledge Herod will use to he thinks his advantage, the knowledge of when the star appeared. Well, let's read now from 9 to 12. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The star reappeared ahead of them as they made their way to Bethlehem. And verse 10 says, they rejoiced. They rejoiced because they had found the Savior. Did you rejoice when you found him? I remember the night I did, the night that he saved me. But it says here, and going into the house. Now here is where the text states something very, very, very clear. They didn't go to the manger scene. So our lovely Christmas cards showing this is inaccurate. By the time Jesus was, as the text says, a child is when they saw him. Whenever Christmas came at our house and we would take out the nativity set, the wise men were never put into the nativity scene on the table. They were put over on the piano so the kids knew that they were on their way to visit Bethlehem. I wanted the kids to know what the scripture taught because it's important that the Magi came at the right time and gave the gifts at the right time and were warned in a dream not to go back and see Herod. God is continuing to show his providential care and his plan for his son. I had heard a long time ago that the gifts they presented were costly and probably were part of what sustained the family as they fled to Egypt. How much would they have set by to travel and stay in Egypt? Again, we're not told, but we know God knew. In Psalm 72, which has messianic overtones, it says in verses 9 and 10, Let the nomads of the desert bow down before him. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow down before him. Interestingly, we look and say, who worshipped the king? Who worshipped the king of the Jews? Not the scribes or the chief priests, not Herod the earthly king, but these Gentile magi. They were either either they were either either they were either from Arabia, Persia, or Babylon. And we know the term wise men from the book of Daniel, 
In chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar wanted his dreams interpreted, he sent for the wise men. So these men were astrologers, or, or were not told exactly what they studied, except they obviously studied stars. Matthew's making a point here. The Magi came. That those who come to Jesus, who seek him, will be blessed. Matthew is saying what Luke says in his gospel. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These men had traveled long and far, and now they found the one of whom Micah had prophesied. And they could say like Simeon in the temple, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. I don't know if many of you saw during Christmas season, um, there was a video put on Facebook, and it showed the Magi coming to a house. And it showed them going into the house, and there was a little boy there. And these Magi bowed down with their gifts. And whoever the actor was that played the part of the one Magi, as he looked at the child, there was a, a look on his face that said, I have found him. This is who, the promised one. And it just moved me. I just looked at that and thought, what a wonderful way to, to show what had happened during that season. Well, let's continue on because now it gets really interesting, more interesting, 13 to 18. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet to Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, and this just man, as we heard him described before, is also an obedient man, a man of action, and he immediately obeys the Lord and takes them to Egypt and follows God's directive. Stay there till I tell you, because Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And so he takes them to Egypt and remain there until the death of Herod. And here again, Matthew's describing once again God's plan being fulfilled to what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. That prophet was Hosea. And in chapter 11, verse 1, Hosea is referring to the redemption of Israel from Egypt by Moses. But back there was a hidden message, a hidden meaning in the passage, which would later refer to what Matthew is now bringing out as he again states, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 16 to 18, as we read that and saw what Herod did, it really drives home the fact that the wise men's visit in the house in verse 11 
would have made Jesus around two years old, which is how and why Herod calculates. You see that word again used, ascertained, worked out according to the time he talked to the wise men? That is why he made the decree to kill all the males two years old and under. He'd make sure he didn't miss this little usurper. Again, Matthew brings in an Old Testament prophecy, and I always wondered what this meant, this voice heard in Ramah, and what did Rachel weeping for her children mean? Well, the prophecy is found in Jeremiah 31 and 15, and it refers to the time of Israel's mourning at the Babylonian captivity. Probably there were mothers wailing as their children were slain during the invasion. And so in this way, Matthew saw the same description of sadness at the similar weeping of Jewish mothers when Herod had their babies slaughtered in order to kill the Messiah. And now we're going to read the final part of chapter 2, the return to Nazareth. So let's look at 19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he returned to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, we read in verse 20, Joseph's not operating on Joseph time. He's operating on God's timetable. I thought of the verse that I think describes Joseph, and it's found also in the book of Micah, and it's indeed one in which we can all understand. It says in Micah, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Another translation says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What made Joseph the way he was? He was the right one to raise Jesus. I wondered what his home life had been. You know, we condition our kids to be a certain way, whether we realize it or not. But here was a man that God knew had been raised to love Mercy, he certainly was that, as he, he, he treated Mary the way she, she was treated. And, and I just thought about him because so much rested on him. He was a leader of the family. And he knew and had wisdom. God gave him that wisdom, not just with dreams, but he just seemed to be so uh, well prepared to do what he needed to do to protect his wife and baby. Because he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea and that he was ruthless, I guess it ran in the family. Apple didn't fall from, from the tree. If you read some history about Archelaus, you see how ruthless he was. But Joseph, knowing this, took the family to Nazareth. And here Matthew is stating that this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. But nowhere is there a reference to this. Unless you start to think about Nazareth and the term Nazarene, because Nazareth wasn't thought highly of. In fact, there was a saying that said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so it, it looked at someone who was despised, really. 
And Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, said in chapter 53, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so to refer to a Nazarene was sort of a put down. It really was. So we've come to the end of these first two chapters. And we started with the genealogy of our Savior. We saw that his coming was to be a blessing to all nations, both Jew and Gentile. And I was just thinking, although your genealogy and mine may not be descended from a line of wonderful people, the main question to ask ourselves is this, am I a child of God? Have I been born of the Spirit of God? Have I come to Christ for forgiveness? Have I realized that in my sinful state I couldn't appear before God? Do I realize what he did in sending his son? Have I related to God's gift of his son with indifference as the scribes and Pharisees did? Or have I come to that place where following Jesus and honoring him is the most important thing in my life? As we study this book, my prayer is that you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this Jesus is who he claimed to be and he alone can bring forgiveness and peace and joy. Now next week we'll uh, uh, cover chapter 3. And so have a good week as you study chapter 3. Thank you.